Okay. Good morning, everyone. I'm here with uh, Glenn Lowry. It's another episode of Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Uh, Glenn Lowry is a professor of economics at Brown University. He's a winner of numerous awards, including uh, most recently being inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And uh, Glenn, you've also recently got engaged, so I have to begin by congratulating you. Thank you very much. So we're here to talk about free speech and academic policies at Brown. I know you've been talking about this with uh, Rob Muntz on a recent episode of Blogging Heads. Yeah. And talked about it with John McWhorter on several occasions as well. That's right. So from what I understand, the faculty at Brown are now having discussions about what to do about these sorts of incidents. Brown has had a couple of incidents, one involving the police chief, I believe, and then another involving a debate about rape culture. Uh, the, yeah, these are, uh, uh, are fabled incidents by now. It's yes. uh, almost three years, I think, since Ray Kelly uh, was not permitted to deliver uh, a speech here. Uh, having been invited by our public policy program, he was then the commissioner of police of New York City. He wanted to talk about what he called proactive policing. And uh, uh, many in the community, students and also uh, residents of Providence, objected uh, on the grounds that uh, the racial profiling implicit in uh, New York City's policing practices was uh, racist and unconstitutional. And the long and short of it is he wasn't permitted to speak. And that was like a foundational uh, event in what has evolved into a uh, vigorous debate about free speech here at Brown. Uh, because uh, some of us were, were deeply disturbed by the event uh, preventing a, uh, a dignitary who comes to offer uh, arguments about an important public policy question from being able to speak. Not that one shouldn't protest if one disagreed with his views or that one couldn't vigorously argue with him, but that mm -hmm. he oughtn't to be permitted to speak. Brown ought not to lend its imprimatur to such um, uh, uh, evil and uh, uh, wrongheadedness as is exemplified by the policing practices of the city of New York. Um, which, you know, I, I thought was uh, rather an outrageous uh, exercise of power within our institutional context to preclude uh, deliberation and discussion about matters that are arguable. But in any case, that was the foundational incident. And yes, there have been other uh, incidents. I won't try to go into them. I know our time is limited. Uh, but mm -hmm. yes, we are having here at Brown a back and forth about uh, what the uh, fundamental uh, values of the institution are and uh, what uh, obligations members of our communities have toward a tolerance of uh, expression of ideas that they disagree with. Okay. So what is, um, well, who's having these discussions? Is it in the faculty senate or is there some kind of committee that's looking into this? Well, um, in the context of the incident involving Ray Kelly, there were a number of different forums in which uh, discussion took place. Uh, there was a town hall meeting that the president called in the immediate days after the event, and it was attended by many hundreds of uh, students, faculty, and administrators, and there was uh, an expression of uh, concerns there. Two faculty committees were appointed to investigate the Ray Kelly incident, one to examine I'm sorry, there was one committee, but they issued two reports. One committee, but there were two reports. One which examined exactly what happened in the days prior to and then at the event itself because the students had petitioned 
the inviting uh, body, the public policy program here at Brown, to disinvite Ray Kelly, and the administrator there had uh, respectfully declined to do so, and all of that needed to be uh, investigated. There were uh, local police officers seated in a row in their uniforms in the front of the auditorium, which was found to be provocative by some people, and how did that decision get made? Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so there was okay. an investigation of the events, and then there was a consideration of the larger implication of the events for our community in the uh, report. I can't quote it off of memory, chapter and verse, but mm -hmm. the report uh, on the larger implications uh, basically concluded that with a formula of balancing the interest that the community has in argument and deliberation on the one hand with the concerns not to uh, do injury uh, to uh, marginal members of the community on the other hand. Uh, the uh, presence of Ray Kelly was at some level and in some way injurious to the uh, idea that you would try to normalize or legitimize racial profiling uh, through arguments about public safety was on this argument uh, harmful, uh, and there was harmful speech, so we had to balance the harm that speech might do. Uh, there were other incidents, I don't want to go into all of these details, but some student wrote op-eds in the student newspaper suggesting that the uh, meeting of the New World uh, populations, native populations, with the European uh, conquering populations might not have been entirely deleterious. Uh, I remember that one, yeah. Suggesting that Columbus might not have been all bad, you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and that created a firestorm of protest because now the student newspaper has published a quote-unquote racist opinion from uh, one of our uh, students uh, in its uh, print, and the uh, administration basically apologized uh, for the fact that and reprimanded the uh, uh, editors of the student newspaper for having published the uh, editorial in the first place, and that too elicited a response from some people, uh, myself included, to the effect that. Uh, the way that you answer an uh, argument about the significance of uh, Christopher Columbus and company encounter with the New World populations, uh, which you don't like, an uh, argument about it which you don't like, is to make another argument that refutes and, and, and gives coherent expression to what it is that you don't like about the first argument. Uh -huh. uh, but but that was not the way in which many people have So there were other things that were going on, and this idea of harm, this idea that some kinds of speech placed vulnerable members of our community in an un intolerable position, and for that reason could at least be uh, edited, if not entirely foreclosed, uh, uh -huh. was introduced uh, into our discussions here at Brown by the second of these two uh, uh, faculty reports, uh, 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 reports to the uh, uh, administration undertaken by a faculty committee in the aftermath of the original Ray Kelly incident. So, uh -huh. I mean, and there are other things that one could point to. I mean, you can walk around campus here, and uh, on occasion, you can, I even put it up on my Facebook page, on occasion, you can find uh, a poster that uh, says, free speech equals hate speech. Right. Okay, that, I, that poster has been cited uh, on the campus, so there's this view Weaponizing free speech is the way my colleague Trisha Rose put it in a faculty meeting. We mustn't be weaponizing the free speech argument. So you're using free speech as a bludgeon to uh, curtail the uh, advocacy of the interests of marginalized communities within the university, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So do you think anything is going to change? I mean, part of the problem here, it's not a, necessarily a policy problem of 
let's have a discussion after one of these incidents occurs and let's see, you know, what went wrong in this particular incident. But it's, there's a cultural issue of saying, well, you know, university, culturally speaking, is just a place where you get all kinds of views. Some people are going to be very provocative. Some people, from your point of view, are going to be stupid and not worth listening to. But part of the culture of a university is you just allow that to happen because that's how academic discourse occurs. And then there's another cultural model which says that the university is sort of like a, a community. It's a family. It's supposed to be a warm place for everyone. And anytime anyone feels excluded, that's a problem. And I can see how both of these models have some validity to them. But if you really want to make everyone feel included all the time, there's just certain kinds of academic discourse you can't have. Now, you yourself teach about uh, how affirmative action might not have the intended benefits it has, but then again, it might. And so there's a debate there. You, I, I assume you present it as a debate Indeed. Um, about affirmative action. Um, do you have any students who are shocked that you present a downside to affirmative action? Uh, no, there's, there could be vigorous pushback. Um, but but I, I want to I just say something uh, for the record, that uh, hmm. there is um, an awareness of the... Um, Concerns that uh, the heterodox academy devotees would would think foremost about, you know, which is that we ought to allow differences of opinion to be expressed. It's vitally important that we do so. There, there is an appreciation of that uh, point of view here uh, uh, in the administration. I think of my uh, friend uh, and uh, longtime acquaintance, the provost of the university, Richard Locke, a political scientist, formerly director of the Watson Institute, where I'm mm -hmm. affiliated here. I've gotten to know him very well. Uh, and I've had extended conversations with him about these matters, and uh, they've been candid because we're friends, and I've expressed my concerns. He's got a difficult problem, uh, Rick Locke has got, in uh, 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 balancing the various equities that are concerned. And I'm not talking about splitting the difference on free speech issues. I'm talking about managing a, uh, a, a large organization with a lot of different moving parts and, uh, and varied interests. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he has uh, instituted, Locke has, a, a very self-consciously, a lecture series bringing controversial speakers to campus. Uh, I mean, not um, uh, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos-type controversy yeah. or Ann Coulter-type controversy, but, you know, people uh, who would push back uh, against the zeitgeist here on a variety of different issues. And, and Rick has wanted to open us up to uh, debate and discussion. He's encouraged... Um, uh, that kind of thing. It's not, a, what I'm saying is, it's not uh, a one-dimensional, uh, oh my God, free speech is dying at Brown. I mean, Rob Montz, who I admire, the filmmaker who I uh, yeah. you know, uh, contributed to one of his projects uh, about Brown, he's an alumnus of Brown, and he did something on, you know, free speech at Brown being endangered, uh, is is uh, is a very uh, talented filmmaker. You know, he's got a point of view himself. He's got an accent he's grinding himself, and uh, it, 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 it's not necessarily a balanced view of Brown to think that this is a bastion of this institution, is a bastion of a kind of, uh, you know, left-wing, uh, uh, precious uh, hothouse of, uh, you know, uh, everybody has to have the same mm -hmm. view or they're, or they're out. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a more uh, complicated uh, situation than that. But there are these concerns, and I do have them. Now, you've asked me about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, uh, the, the, the typical view about affirmative action here would be, I think, I think I'd be correct in saying this, it's beyond mm-hmm. criticism. What are you talking about? It's a foundational thing. It's the same thing as racial justice. This is affirmative action. It's how we get a diverse university. And if you mm-hmm. come along and if you say, uh, well, uh, there are a lot of different issues you could raise here. Is it working? Uh, do we actually have lower standards? Um, why are there so few students of color in the sciences and engineering at Brown? Um, uh, what are the incentives uh, implied by affirmative action? If you tell somebody that they're going to be able to succeed because they belong to a certain group and they don't have to meet the same standard, does that undercut their incentive to perform? Uh, do you think you can really get equality if you're going to use different standards for constituting the membership of racially self-conscious and identified communities within our university that you can have equality if everybody knows and everybody knows that everybody knows that students of color are not subject to the same criteria of assessment before being admitted to the university? Do you think that's a way to get equality? Uh, what do you think is really going on in the minds of people when they know that this is going, oh, oh, I see, they're racist. If they make the logical inference that lower standards of admission for students of color implies that on the average, a student of color encountered in the university community has been admitted with lower standards. That, that line of, uh, of uh, one step Statistical reasoning is racist, is it? They're supposed to excise from their mind the information that you're using self-consciously, different standards for admitting people to university. Those kind of arguments <laughs> are met with often with eyes rolled in the back of the head and so forth and so on. But you can't make them, and I do make them in my class, mm-hmm. along with the, quote, other side, close quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to present evidence, you know, people have done these studies of, uh, you know, uh, the mismatch hypothesis and the affirmative action bait and all like that. So, so, yeah, I think I, I, I could get away with it in my class. Maybe it's just me. Maybe a white professor would have a harder time being able to make the same arguments in the class. Um, but the, the pushback is vigorous. Okay. And then so, that's as it should be. I don't know. No. Yeah. But one of the things you pointed out in a recent blogging ads interview, too, is now you have this reputation as a sort of a centrist, maybe conservative professor at Brown, and a lot of African-American students are avoiding your course. I had 85 students in my race and inequality course last semester. I'll offer it last year. I'll offer it again in the fall. I had 85 students. At the end of the course, I think there were four blacks in there uh, out of 85. So that's... Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, a, a low number for a course on race and inequality at Brown, uh, given that our student body is, I don't know what it is, but it might be, you know, 8 or 10% black, and uh, that the subject matter, race and inequality, might have been expected to attract a higher than uh, uh, proportional uh, enrollment of uh, African-American students. So I asked one of my uh black students who might become friendly within the class uh, when we were chatting after class one day, where are the black people? And his answer to me was, oh, Professor Lowry, don't you know the word is out on you? People know that you, I was on leave uh, in the 2015-16 academic year when a lot of this uh, uh, brouhaha over the University of Missouri uh, protest and so forth, which spread to other campuses, including Brown, uh, took place. And... um, I, uh, in the Black Lives Matter uh, debate, and, you know, do you say Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter? And, you know, Black Lives Matter, people taking a microphone from Bernie Sanders and confronting Hillary Clinton, and all those events were going down. And I decided that I, I had, a, I had an uh, uh, op-ed that I wanted to write saying, in effect, we should say All Lives Matter and not Black Lives Matter. And the New York Times wanted to take it, you know. 
And, right. uh, you know, I've been in the New York Times, ain't too bad. You know, that gets read by a few people. Um, but I decided to give it to the student newspaper here at Brown instead because I, I really wanted to make a statement to my community about this particular issue. And my position was, look, at, I, I, you know, I know that there are bad acting police out there, and, and I understand the energy behind Black Lives Matter and that sometimes, you know, protest and demonstration and even, you know, uh, disruption is necessary to galvanize political movements and stuff like that. But you know what? More white people than black people are killed by police every year. Police violence is a serious problem. If you really want to change it, we need allies. And the best way to get them is to not start out by saying, by specializing the injury to black people. But to, so now look, this argument could be right, it could be wrong, whatever, whatever. But I really thought it was important to make the statement publicly within the context of the brown community. And I did do. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, comments and, you know, uh, some of the alumni wrote in saying, finally, sanity at Brown. And some of the students wrote in saying, what the heck is wrong with you? Don't you know that black people are being hunted by the police and whatnot like that? Which is good. It's all good. It was all a debate. But that intervention while I was away from campus did not go unnoticed <laughs> by the communities of color on campus. And what, uh, what this young man, Isaiah, uh, was telling me was, uh, man, the, the word is out on you. People, uh, don't, they don't forgive that kind of stuff very easily. It's very cliquish around here. The, uh, the, the black student community here, you know, uh, people want to stay on the right page with everybody else. And there tends to be a bit of a hurting, uh, a kind of a groupthink thing that goes on. And uh, you're, you're persona non grata in, in, uh, in many quarters around here. The economic, I'll just finish, I mean, because it's not really about me, but the economics right. department is interested in recruiting more uh, concentrators who are students of color. We're very, very underrepresented relative to the university. Most of the, uh, uh, we have relatively few concentrators in economics. And so the undergraduate studies director of the economics mm-hmm. department asked me to do a forum uh, at the Third World Center. Uh, it used to be called the Third World Center. Now I think it's called the Center for Students of Color or something like that. But And, and forgive me for right. not knowing exactly. But in any case, you know what I mean. It, it's a, right. My wife went to Brown and she told me it used to be called the Third World Center yeah. and there was a controversy around that. Well, as well it should have been. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, uh, I go over there and uh, there's like 20 fresh-faced uh, kids in there you know, to talk. Professor Lowry comes to say why he's he thinks economics is worth your time. And do you know that not one of them was black? There was like there was like 10 Asian kids in there and eight white kids and two graduate students. Not a single one of the kids that came uh, around to hear from, you know, mm-hmm. with, with uh, modesty. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, you know, undistinguished economist. I'm a pretty, you know, I'm an African-American economist. There are not so many of us. And I'm there at Brown talking about economics. And, and, and that's so not, you know. That's not uh, an accident, you know. That's that's not that's not a statistically likely event to have occurred uh, in the ab- absence of any kind of, uh, uh, you know, Lowry's not worth our time kind of thing. So, but it's okay. It's all good. I'm not. I'm not complaining. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm just observing. Uh, yeah. That, uh, yeah. My reputation precedes me, and it does discourage some of our uh, young people from engaging with me. Now, when you were at Stanford, did you teach any courses, and did you was that, was anything different there? No, I, I was at a research center at a, the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, which uh, thankfully has no students or uh, teaching obligations. Sits up on a hill uh, uh, near the golf course at Stanford, looking down on a lake, and then ultimately onto the campus, and involves these little uh, Quonset hut type offices. You have your own little office with uh, a deck. 
and a, a, a glass wall on one side that has the view that you're looking down there. I mean, it's like perfect. <laughs> they give you a free lunch every day and all you do is sit in and write your book or your uh, work on your experiments or, or whatever your, your project yeah. is. Okay. So, no, I was, so, I was on leave and, uh, you know, I took that seriously. <laughs> all right. All right. So, I understand Brown recently uh, decided to allocate a million dollars, maybe more, to diversity initiatives. Oh, Are you, I, you meant to say $100 million, didn't you? $100 million. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And then in one yeah. of the angry uh, public meetings where the president was discussing with students uh, about how the university was responding to the up, up, or uproar about diversity and inclusion and uh, to said that the university was committed to uh, investing $100 million over some years in uh, various initiatives that were all under the rubric of diversity and inclusion. She was confronted by some student who asked her, um, the Brown Endowment is, and whatever it is, I don't actually know what it is, but I'm going to say $2 billion. And that number might be off a little bit, but it's in that vicinity. What percentage of $2 billion is $100 million? asserts the angry student to the face of the president of the university who just committed to investing $100 million. $100 million? What percentage of our endowment is that? He says angrily to our president, uh, which was a little uncivil, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not enough. I'm, I'm actually hard pressed to know how they're going to spend the money. I, uh, well, uh, let me not. Yeah. You know. there's, a, there's an elaborate plan. Um, there, the uh, under the leadership of the president and the provost, uh, who's been very active in this area, there is a diversity and inclusion action plan for the university, a DIAP, D-I-A-P, diversity and inclusion action plan for okay. the university, uh, of which one part is every unit, every department or research center has to formulate its own diversity and inclusion action plan about its unit. It has to do a self-study in which it examines what is going on. It has to appoint committees that do self-studies and produce reports that are then submitted to the central administration. All this has been going on for uh, over a year, maybe uh, nearly two years, and so it's pretty far advanced. All these uh, uh, studies and reports have been done in which they examine faculty hiring, they examine their curriculum, they do uh, 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 an inquiry as to uh, the participation of minority students in their programming and ask themselves if they could do, if they could do better to it. Our economics department is trying to get more minority uh, students of color concentrators, but every unit in the uh, university is doing something like that. Um, funds have been uh, allocated by the university for faculty appointments of people of color uh, where departments are urged to identify qualified people of color, the provost assures the, all of us, me, me included, because I, I asked him personally, that this did not mean a re lowering of the bar in terms of quality for appointments and so on. And I, you know, I mean, it's one of these things. I've said, well, look at logically, how can it not mean a lowering of the bar unless the implication is that people who were above the bar who were of color were being rejected by these units in the first place prior to in, in, instituting the plan. That is to say, either we were discriminating against qualified black candidates before and we're going to end the discrimination now, or we were not discriminating against qualified black candidates, there just were not enough of them, in which case we're going to change the definition of qualification in order to get more. It looked to me like there was no alternative but one or the other of those hypotheses. 
Uh, and given the uh, liberal political tone of the community here, it's hard to envision that we were explicitly discriminating against qualified black or Latino candidates, uh, even in a place like economics, which tends to be pretty centrist in a political tone or apolitical and pretty technical. I know that my colleagues, uh, who are all white, I'm the only African-American appointee in the department, uh, would jump for joy uh, at a uh, candidate coming through who was a person of color and who was, uh, was killing it, you know, was really, really good. Right. They'd be delighted to appoint such a person, and they're not, uh, you know, uh, uh, diversity mongers in any sense. They realize that it would be good for us to have more faculty of color, but they also want to be a top 10 department, and you don't get to be a top 10 department by appointing people who you don't think are really at the frontier of the discipline, blah, 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 blah. I go on too long. <coughs> There's an <coughs> extensive set of initiatives on, uh, being funded by the $100 million. Um, also, you know, scholarship support for uh, first-time college goers in your family and things like that. Um, uh, the, the university is trying very hard to be responsive to demands within the community for greater uh, diversity and inclusion of uh, marginalized uh, communities. Okay. But does any of... Have you seen any of that money going towards evidence-based initiatives? Because I know there are social psychologists and organizational psychologists who are really working at this issue of how to make people, how to make first-generation students feel more included, how to make black and Hispanic students feel more included. Um, and then you've got policies that are maybe trendy but counterproductive, like creating spaces for students of a particular race to self-segregate from the rest of the student body. Uh, safe spaces, so to speak. Do you see any division there where, where the, the money is being spent on, on evidence-based initiatives? Um, uh, hold on, let me just respond okay. to this with... Uh, uh, sure, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, evidence-based uh, uh, Interventions, which are in a in a kind of systematic and scientific way, being evaluated to see if they are actually effective at um, producing the desired goal of greater inclusion and uh, so on. It, uh, right, right. Is that, is that what the, you're asking me? The, that is because some uh, of the money tends to be no spent on non-evidence-based stuff. I, I, so, you know. Uh, it's an interesting question whether institutions, when they respond to crises and they implement more or less popular remedies, have an uh, evidentiary basis for being confident that those remedies are going to produce the desired outcome. That's an interesting question because there are, uh, there's a tendency to, uh, uh, in a, you know, following trends, you know, to just kind of do what everybody else is doing. Well, you know, there's like six things that you're supposed to do if you're really interested in diversity and inclusion. Right. Uh, so I don't know of any um, systematic studies of uh, the effectiveness of uh, some of the uh, uh, programmatic interventions that are being implemented. And it just may be my ignorance. I, I, I don't know the literature. I don't know the psychological literature, for example. Uh, and I, there may be other education policy uh, studies that have been done where people have tried to look at, well, what do you do when you have a minority community in university and they're not entirely feeling included? How do you deal with those feelings? 
For example, what what impact do your admissions policies have on the uh, consequential uh, relations that develop between different uh, ethnic communities in the uh, university? Not to put it all on affirmative action, but to at least ask that question. I don't know if anybody's asking that, I, so I don't know. Okay. I mean, the reason I ask that is when I, in my own personal experience, I haven't systematically looked at all the universities, but my experience chives with yours, people tend to do well, certain things tend to be trendy. Students tend to ask for certain things like more minority faculty and more money spent towards diversity initiatives and more deans or associate deans of diversity. And these may or may not have effects. I was an international student when I came to the U.S. It definitely helped me when we had a, a full-time international student dean as opposed to a, when I joined, we had a dean who was splitting half the time dealing with international students and half the time dealing with other things. So sometimes that genuinely helps. But in the social psychology world, you now see people like Greg Walton at Stanford University. I don't know if you got into him there. I did not. Uh, Greg Walton and a couple of other social psychologists there doing work on how to make first-year students feel more included. Um, you see organizational psychologists, too, in some business and management schools actually looking at trying to find evidence-based solutions or at least finding evidence that certain things don't work as well. And I feel like that's an oncoming crisis of if you're going to devote $100 million to something, maybe you should spend, you know, at least 25% of it on things that are evidence-based. Might be a good idea. Yeah. Um, that's at least worth exploring. I mean, I, I don't know enough to respond in the context of Brown as to just how the management is thinking about assessing the effectiveness of the interventions. As I say, Rick Locke, the provost of the university, and I don't mean to uh, uh, sell short Christina Paxson, who's the president, but Rick is the person whom I know well and talk to often, is a, is a good manager, and, I'm, and, and these are the kinds of things that I think uh, he would be responsive to if you brought to his attention, if you said, okay, mm -hmm. we've been doing this for three years, uh, let's do a retrospect and try to assess uh, what we've gotten for our money. That's the kind of thing that I would expect him to nod his head affirmatively and then have an answer to me about it. Yeah, well, we mm -hmm. have done internal assessment or whatever, maybe it's informal, maybe it's not for a scientific journal, but we, we are confident that we're not throwing our money out the window, that kind of thing. Uh, so it, mm -hmm. I, I would think would just be good stewardship of the, of the university to, to ask questions like that. Now, you mentioned also administrators, and of course, deans have been created. I mean, offices have been stood up here, and staff have been hired to, uh, uh, to man and woman those offices. And, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's more administrative uh, overhead in the diversity area now than there used to be. <coughs> um, you know, there's a, I, I can't name the titles of, of these positions, but they are like, you know, associate provost for uh, faculty diversity or something like that. They, they go, you know. Uh, when, when a faculty gets a authorization for a line to search for an appointment, uh, the committee is going to have to submit paperwork and there's, there's a, now a dean sitting somewhere or an associate dean or a deputy provost or something who is examining uh, the paperwork and making sure that, you know, the search has been up to the standards of, you know, looking far and wide, not just going to the old boys network and stuff like that. Right. Um, there's, you know, in student uh, affairs, uh, the, 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 the person here who I actually think is a good professional in, in, in what he does, and I respect him, um, who is uh, the uh, uh, vice president for student life. Again, I may not get the title quite right, but 
the person who sits above all of the administrative infrastructure for dealing with daily day life on campus for students um, uh, has an extensive extensive uh, uh, staff uh, working for uh, him. It's a lot bigger than it used to be. There's a lot of uh, 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 effort uh, into trying to make people feel comfortable and being responsive to their concerns. It's not only minority student issues, but it would substantially uh, minority and uh, uh, gender issues, you know, uh, sexual assault on campus kind of issues and things like right. that. Uh, so um, whether the administrative overhead is greater than can be justified by the nature of the problem and how much faculty autonomy is infringed upon are important issues. I serve on the faculty executive committee here at Brown. Uh, you're elected for a three-year term. It is a committee that oversees the activities of all the other faculty committees governing the university. They all, in effect, report to the faculty executive committee. And so it's a forum where we meet with uh, administrators of the university all the time in order to make sure that they are aware of the faculty's concerns. And one of the faculty's concerns is uh, that, you know, this should be uh, not, whatever we're doing in response to diversity uh, issues oughtn't to infringe upon the autonomy of faculty to govern uh, the university on its uh, intellectual side. I mean, it's the faculty. That's the source of the, of the expertise here. And you don't want to have administrators substituting their judgments for faculty judgments about matters that are of pedagogic or, you know, intellectual substance. Uh, that's not their job to do it. Uh, so there's a, a kind of uh, tug of war might be putting it too much of an opposition, but there's at least a kind of not entirely comfortable uh, jockeying for influence uh, between administration and faculty around some of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's just a lot of different stuff. I get emails all the time about faculty of color are meeting to do X or to do Y. And in one of the faculty executive committee meetings, uh, they wanted mentorship. They wanted faculty of color to mentor. And I objected. And I said, look it, I mean, I'm an economist in the economics department. If a young economist comes along and needs mentoring in my field, I should be mentoring him. <clears throat> it doesn't matter, or her, what uh, color they are, what group they belong to. And uh, likewise, if a student of color comes in here, uh, and a uh, graduate student or a young faculty come, and they are of color, uh, but they're working in an area that the, the leading uh, people in that area are not of color. Why, why would they need a mentor who is of color? What does the of colorness got to do with uh, becoming a first-rate physicist or an engineer or uh, a, a literary scholar? Um, aren't, we, aren't we making uh, untoward presumptions about people based upon superficial information? They're a, they are a faculty of color, therefore their mentor should be a person of color? I object, I said. Right. And there were heads in the faculty executive committee nodding around the table saying, yeah, we get that, we get that. Uh, I see what you're saying, but guess what? Uh, the faculty of color mentoring um, uh, office is run by the vice president for diversity at the university, and it's going strong. We got social hours of color where the faculty of color get together to, to whatever, whatever. And I'm saying, okay, you know, but this is not 1970 anymore, man. You know, this is just yeah. Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry's reaction is that stuff is getting kind of tired and we should mm -hmm. in the 21st century be looking to outgrow it because the things that make us alike and different in the context of the university uh, are many. Uh, among which the color of our skin is one and I would say not a leading 
one of those indicators. But now I'm, I'm staking out a substantive political position with which many people will disagree. That's true. Well, I think there's a there's this variation in mindsets there where if you if you're of the mindset that white people, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are oppressors, and there's a system of white supremacy that needs to be dismantled, maybe you want to to create those types of associations. Whereas if you don't have that mindset and you envision a desegregated world and you want deseg you want to increase desegregation immediately, you would want more. You want you would want people to have mentors of, of any race, mentoring people of every race. Um, so there may be a difference of mindsets there. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the things that I've been saying, and, and I'm I'm going to have to go, Chris. I'm I'm running out. Yeah, of time here. we should wrap One this of up. One yeah. I've been saying in uh, these uh, free speech debates is. You know, there is the, the kind of formal question of that everybody should be able to have their say. And then there's, there's the substantive question of what are people saying. And oftentimes the stuff that people are saying is wrong, in my opinion. But it, we're, we're focused on, you know, we say free speech. Okay, so everybody should be able to have their say and you shouldn't shut people down because you disagree with them. Okay, so of course I'm on board with that. But... I don't want to see the, the arguments of substance to people uh, if they're prepared to allow, <laughs> what am I trying to say here? I mean, I'm, I'm saying, I think, there's some, I think there's some stuff that's just wrongheaded. And it's not that they're precluding speech and the existence of speech itself doesn't resolve the issue. I think there's just some stuff that's wrongheaded. Um, yeah. So uh, the idea that... Uh, uh, you can't criticize Black Lives Matter, or you can't. You know, anyway, I, I, let me let me stop. I don't know exactly what I want to say, so I, I should. Okay, stop. okay, I should but stop. I see your point. All right, we appreciate your time. Maybe in a couple of months we can have another talk and talk about those things. Sure thing, Chris. Uh, that's fine. Uh, we're going to sign off now. I'm going to stop the tape and I'm put it up at uh, Dropbox. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye.